from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, April 15th. Today, a massive fire at Paris's Notre Dame. Surprises in the latest 2020 fundraising reports. And Tiger Woods is back. I walked into a colleague's office and I was going to ask him about something. And he pointed at his computer screen and did you see Notre Dame is on fire? And I saw the image on the computer screen and just gasped. Robert McCartney is a senior regional correspondent at The Post. But for two and a half wonderful years, I was the managing editor of the International Herald Tribune in Paris and visited Notre Dame many times. I have a strong emotional attachment to that building and to that site in the heart of the city. Just before 7 p.m. local time on Monday, reports went out of a fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. A few minutes later, the whole church was consumed in flames. Within an hour, the church's iconic wooden spire toppled over. According to Paris police, there are no reports of deaths or injuries. The cathedral has been under renovation, and officials said that they believe the fire was accidental, related to construction. But the damage to the nearly thousand-year-old church is immeasurable. The cathedral, of course, is made of stone, so it's not burning. But there's a wooden roof. There's two towers, two square towers. Are the what really famous uh, part of the the you know that's the most visible thing about the church. And then there's a gabled roof behind it, which is made of wood, and that's what's on fire. So presumably, I mean, hopefully, only the wooden roof will be damaged and that can be repaired. But obviously, until the fire's out and they can see how much damage has been done, we won't know. And I would think that there's probably artwork inside the church that will suffer either from fire, smoke, or water damage. So what is Notre Dame? Notre Dame is the cathedral of Paris. It's the seat of the Archbishop of Paris. It's the most famous example of French Gothic architecture. It was built in the 1100s and 1200s. I would say it's one of the two most famous churches in the world, uh, St. Peter's in Rome being the other one, St. Peter's Cathedral, of course, the seat of the Vatican. It's the most visited tourist site in Paris. By far, it gets twice as many visitors as the Eiffel Tower, believe it or not. You know, Paris has been arguably this the center of Western civilization longer than any place else, and this is the building at the heart of French cultural heritage. And what is it like seeing these images of of the center of cultural heritage on fire? It's very upsetting to me. As I said, I've been visiting that church since, um, I guess the first time I went there, I would have been in my early 20s, and now I'm in my 60s. I've visited it many times. I've prayed in that church. 
and the facade is just gorgeous. I mean, I think it's the finest facade of any church I've I've ever seen, and that includes St. Peter's. It's just it's such an important part of Western cultural heritage. It's just very disturbing to see it uh, being damaged this way. What do you think it'll do to Paris to see this this landmark on fire? It'll be of huge importance in France. They take their cultural history extremely seriously there, of course. I, you know, Speaking as a journalist, my initial somewhat cynical reaction was, well, who's to blame for this? I mean, if it's the people who were doing the renovations, because they are doing renovations right now, if the people who are doing the renovations caused it, then they're going to be in big trouble. I think people will be very upset that, that this happened and that the... Uh, they'll be worried about, you know, just what what it means for their for their history. You know, the people, the French people, really love their their history, even though they're not that religious. I mean, it's a it's a Roman Catholic cathedral, um, but I think for most people in France, uh, which is a pretty secular culture, it's a more of the historical and architectural legacy is more important than the religious background. Robert McCartney is a senior regional correspondent at The Post. On a day like today where the first quarter has just finished, are you just like sitting at your computer, like pressing refresh on the FEC website, (laughs) waiting for these numbers to show up? I'm not, but I know a couple of our reporters that do that. For people who are really interested in the campaign finance portion of political campaigns, this is sort of like Christmas. Tolu Olarunipa covers politics for The Post. And now that the first quarter of 2019 has come to an end, that means that campaign finance reports for presidential candidates are rolling in. A lot of these campaigns say how much they've raised and they give you sort of the highlights early before they actually file the reports. Then when the reports come out, you get to see the nitty gritty details, how they're spending their money, how much they're spending, what their burn rate is and how the donations are coming in. So obviously one of the campaigns that people are looking at is President Trump's re-election campaign. How much money has he raised in the last three months? President Trump raised $30 million through his campaign. That's the largest amount that he's raised in any quarter. This is the president who started his re-election campaign the day he was sworn in, much earlier than previous presidents have. Our new slogan for 2020, you know what it is? Keep America great. Keep America great. So you say this $30 million, is it bigger than other sitting presidents when they've been at this point in their campaigns? It is. It's much bigger in large part because other sitting presidents were not fully running a re-election campaign this far ahead of their re-election. Some previous presidents hadn't even announced that they were running 
officially at this point. Previous presidents have been wary of doing that, not wanting to be seen as the campaigner in chief. But President Trump has had no qualms about that. He's decided that he wants to show that he's fully engaged with uh, making sure that he's reelected. And in terms of the nitty gritty, do we have any indication of like what kinds of donations these are? Yeah, it's a very interesting mix. There are both small dollar donors. The president has a, an army of online donors that are giving $5 here and there, $25 here and there. The campaign says that about 99% of the donations come from people who are giving less than $200 total. And the president is also raising a lot of money from wealthy donors who he meets with, whether at his Mar-a-Lago club or at other fundraising events where he swoops in to an evening where you know donors pay hundreds or thousands of dollars to sit and dine with him, sometimes to get pictures with him. And those can quickly add up to millions of dollars. One of the campaign officials told me that they made $7 million over the course of a donor retreat weekend in Mar-a-Lago in March, where the president came down while he was on basically on weekend holiday. And it seems like he has all of his bases covered if he can both get small dollar donations and get people to donate online, but also has this kind of bank of wealthy people who are willing to give the big numbers. That's right. That's why he's going to be a pretty formidable candidate in terms of the fundraising going into 2020. His campaign has said they want to raise a billion dollars for the election. A billion dollars. Yeah, that's the target that they, they want to reach. So is a billion dollars significantly more than you would usually see in a presidential campaign? A billion dollars is a huge amount of money and it could do a lot in a presidential campaign. When President Obama ran in 2012, his campaign raised about $720 million, which was seen as a huge amount at the time. Now, it's not only the president's campaign itself, but they also have a joint fundraising operation with the Republican National Committee, and that they're also raising money as well. So the $30 million that the president raised in the first three months is just part of a larger apparatus of super PACs and the Republican Party and other outside groups that are also going to be in there uh, supporting President Trump going into his reelection bid. So how are Democrats doing? Well, Democrats are also raising a lot of money. It just happens that there are a lot of Democrats running at the same time. So they're splitting the pie a little bit. The largest number that we saw on the Democrat side was 18 million from Senator Bernie Sanders, who has his own army of small dollar donors. He was followed by Senator Kamala Harris, who raised about 12 million. Beto O'Rourke, the former congressman from Texas, raised about 9 million after putting together a huge first day, 24 hours, 6 million in the first uh, day of his campaign. But they're not at the 30 million level that the president is, and they're going to trail him for probably a large portion of the campaign as long as there are so many Democrats running at the same time, splitting up the Democratic enthusiasm and the Democratic donations. And they're going to be spending a lot of that money trying to win the primary while President Trump does not really have a formidable primary challenger. The Democrats are going to be spending a lot of their money trying to make sure they make it out of the primary, and then they're going to have to raise even more money to face President Trump. What are some of the other factors that speak to their fundraising numbers? Well, Democrats have also put some self-imposed restrictions on themselves because a lot of them have said that they were not going to raise money from corporate PACs or take money from big banks as part of their policy platform. And I believe that has made it a much smaller pool from which they can draw from. And a lot of them have been 
focusing a lot about how much they're raising from small dollar donors. And uh, they've touted that, but that has also made it difficult for them to get the large dollar numbers that would make their fundraising numbers that much more impressive. So the fact that they are putting these self-imposed restrictions on themselves makes it more difficult for them to compete with President Trump, who does not have any of these restrictions and who has been willing to raise money not only from small dollar donors, but from very wealthy supporters who are giving him money in large chunks. And has a base that ultimately cares less about whether he is accepting money from big wealthy donors or not. That's right. It's been one of the most interesting things about President Trump's re-election campaign. Remember when he ran for his first campaign, he said, I'm not going to take any money. I'm not going to be beholden to any donors. Because I don't need anybody's money. It's nice. I don't need anybody's money. I'm not going to be like all these other politicians. I'm self-funding my campaign. I'm using my own money. I'm not using the lobbyists. I'm not using donors. I don't care. I'm really rich. I'll show you that in a second. Now he doesn't have to put any of his own money into his campaign because he's taking a lot of money from lobbyists, wealthy corporations and banks. And a lot of the people who have benefited from his administration's policies are more than happy to give him a lot of money. And that's something that has not been a big focus. I'm sure Democrats will bring it up when they run against him and say that this is a president who said that he was going to be independent, but is taking a lot of money from the very interests that he said he was campaigning against. But so far, it hasn't been a big part of his campaign at all. Were there any surprises in these numbers? On the Democrat side, the biggest surprise is Mayor Pete Buttigieg of uh, South Bend, Indiana. Not very many people knew about him or thought he would be a top contender, but he raised $7 million after announcing that he was going to be running for president. Many people thought that, you know, the top fundraisers would be the senators and the people who have been in Washington and have built those connections over a long period of time. But uh, his campaign is showing that there is space for a newcomer. There is a hunger in the Democratic Party for a new, fresh face. And voters have shown that they have a high level of interest in him by turning out in large numbers to give him uh, large amounts of money that have put him towards the top of the pack in terms of fundraising. Could these numbers affect who ends up on the debate stage when we start seeing primary debates? Yes. Democrats have set a standard that they have to have a certain number of of donors. I believe it's 65,000 donors to make sure that they meet the standard that's necessary for them to get to the debate stage. Some of the candidates have already met that standard. Some of them have not yet met that standard. Uh, but that is going to determine when we have that first debate in June, who's on the, who's on the stage and who's not on the stage. So for the Democratic candidates who haven't done so well and are not among the top fundraisers, I'm thinking of Senator Amy Klobuchar or Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, what does this mean for them? Well, it is a warning sign that they are going to need to make sure that they have the enthusiasm that's necessary from donors, from small dollar donors, from online donors to translate that into votes. In terms of just having the money to, to power their campaigns through the primaries, they're all doing relatively well that they'll be able to make sure that they have a stream of money that they can use to make sure they get through the early states of Iowa and New Hampshire. But if the sort of slow fundraising numbers is an indication of low enthusiasm among the voters, that may make it difficult for them to catch fire. We have a long time between now and 2020 and before the first votes are cast, but if those senators and officials who were expected to be sort of at the top of the pack remain at the back of the pack, it's going to be a tough sign for them in terms of how they're going to be able to power their campaigns when President Trump is showing that he's having no trouble fundraising and building a lot of enthusiasm among voters who want to see him reelected. 
Tolu Olorunipa is a White House reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Tiger Woods is back. Tiger Woods had been out of golf for a few years, dealing with back injuries and various personal issues. So people were wondering if he ever was going to win another major, and he ended up doing that. He won his fifth Masters yesterday, his 15th major title. So he's back on that train again. Many doubted we'd ever see it. But here it is. The return to glory. I'm Matt Bonesteel, a reporter for the Washington Post Sports Desk. Tiger had not won a major title since 2008. He's the greatest golfer that we've had in the past 20 years. I mean, he changed the sport. He brought a whole new audience into the sport, which before was very wealthy and very white. And now, being who he is, he has a lot more people interested in golf. And with him back in, and he's the most famous golfer of all time, so this is going to bring a whole lot more attention back onto golf. He's back. Now he's winning majors again, and who knows how many he has left. Matt Bonesteel is a sports reporter for The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join in on the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.